assembly, right. we said, is an important thing to do, but that's a totally different thing than actually resolving an incident. So. It is. It is. But it's the first part. And it's the part that you, as an organization, actually have the most control over. This is why we, you know, when, in, with my consulting clients, we focus so much on getting their assembly process really nailed down and smoothed out to where everybody knows, you know, what to do and when to do and how to respond and how to work together and what's expected of them as far mm -hmm. as the response goes. Welcome to the Better Incidents podcast, where we hear from reliability-obsessed responders who are at the forefront of the movement to better manage, remediate, and learn from incidents. I'm your host, Robert Ross. So we've been making this podcast for a few months now, and it's so fun to talk with people that just understand incidents and the intricacies of them and how to make them better for everyone. But today's episode was a standout because I got to speak with someone that has been doing incidents in every form you could possibly think of, from experiences at Burning Man as an incident responder to being a pilot responding to incidents and how he was able to equate all of that to software. Because for me, when it comes to resolving an incident, there are just a number of metrics that can be misleading. Resolution time, for example, can fluctuate wildly. However, there's one that we do have a significant amount of influence over. Today, I'm talking to Brent Chapman, founder of Great Circle, about how engineering teams should ditch metrics like MTTR and instead focus on what we can control, assembly time. Brent, welcome to the Better Incidents podcast. It's, it's so great to have you here. Thank met you. you over four years ago, I think at this point, right? Standing awkwardly at SRECon. <sighs> yeah, it's great to be here. And it's great to have seen, you know, wh what you all have been doing well in the market and so forth. It's great to see all of the interest in this uh, variety of companies now. So, you know, it's a hot topic. It, it, it feels like, uh, feels kind of like it did in the early days of internet firewalls, you know, 20, 30 years ago when I was involved with that. So it's it's nice to be in on the ground floor of something again. Yeah, we're caring about better incidents more and more, I would say. And I think that today we're going to we're going to talk about so many things and really leverage your experience. Um, but before we do that, let's let's talk a little bit about about you. What, what's what's your background? And this is definitely a leading question because you have so many things that I think are fascinating. Right. Uh, be before you got into the software reliability world, you were doing incidents in a different way. So tell us a little yeah. bit about that. <laughs> My professional background is systems and networking, right? I'm a network architect, SRE from before that term came into existence, <laughs> old time Unix sysadmin, you know, infrastructure, all that sort of stuff. Uh, was a staff SRE at Google, was a staff engineer at Slack, things like that. So, you know, my day job has always been technology and infrastructure. Mm -hmm. But I've always done volunteer work in for community service on public safety and emergency services. I started off as a search and rescue pilot and later incident commander. So cool. Yeah. That was where I first really started getting exposed to the practice of incident management, the practice of managing emergencies. And then, you know, throughout the course of my career, I found ways to sort of weave that in to my day job. And now the, the pendulum has swung almost to the other extreme where my day job now is helping companies develop 
incident management practices, you know, incident response, incident analysis, being prepared for incidents, learning everything they can from incidents. You know, uh, as John Allspaw says, uh, an incident is an unplanned investment in your service. So how do you mm -hmm. get the most out of that? Well, you run the incident as, as efficiently and effectively as you can, but also you learn everything you can from the incident after the fact, both to prevent it from happening again and to better prepare for the next incident, because there's always going to be a next incident. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, I love the the bridge that you've been able to create between doing physical incident management, I guess is maybe one way to say it, and, you know, going from being a, a, a pilot to something about Burning Man uh, to, yeah. to staff SRE. We got to hear more about the, okay. the Burning well, Man so, experience. So these days, most of the emergency services work I do, volunteer work that I do, is with something called the Black Rock City Emergency Services Department. Hmm. Uh, Black Rock City is essentially the Burning Man Arts and Music Festival that happens every August and September oh, um, in the Nevada desert. So every year, we build a temporary city of about 80,000 people in the middle of a dry lake bed, in the middle of a desert, 100 miles from the nearest major city. And that nearest major city, by the way, is Reno, Nevada. And it takes great pride in calling itself the, 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 the biggest little city in America. It is yeah. not that big a city. No, it's pretty um, small. Yeah. For the, for the couple of weeks that we are fully up and running at Black Rock City, we are the fifth largest city in Nevada. Um, we handle... <laughs> We handle just about as many emergency calls for fire, medical, and mental health services uh, every year as any other city that size in Nevada does. We just cram all of ours into a two-week period. So on a year-round basis, I manage the IT team, the inf information technology team for the emergency services department, which basically means lots of conference calls and spreadsheets and, and emails and things like that. And then we mm -hmm. design and build the radio system, the two-way radio system for the entire event, and the what amounts to a 911 dispatch center where we where we dispatch fire and medical and mental health emergency resources from. So my team builds that center. And then once we've got it built uh, and we shift over into operating mode, I become the supervisor of the 911 center for an 80,000 person city. You know, one of the supervisors, right? We have a, a temporary here. city. A temporary no less. Yeah. <laughs> but we have a dozen ambulances and a half dozen fire engines and oh my gosh. Uh, four what we call quick response vehicles, which are little golf cart sized miniature ambulances that can get through the crowds and the and the uh, encampments a lot easier and quicker than a full size ambulance can. And and like I said, we run several thousand calls for service during that two week period. They all come in over the radio. There's no reliable cell phone coverage out there. So all of mm -hmm. our incoming calls come in over the radio, which is why we also run the radio system for the entire event, because we're the ones who care the most about it being, you know, functional and effective and so forth. And yeah, it's, it's basically playing three dimensional chess, you know, with fire engines and ambulances and, and sending them around the city on calls and so forth. Uh, when I'm on duty, I've got usually four dispatchers working for me and I am in the process of training them and sending things all over the city. Because one of the interesting things about, you know, I've been doing Burning Man for 10 years now, 15 years, something like that in emergency services, which means I have a total of about one year of clock time experience doing that because we're right. only out there for a few weeks a year. 
you know, and every right. year we have to go out there and kind of dust off the cobwebs and put everything back together again and put a team together, uh, an ad hoc team. Uh, yeah. I got, I've got a different crew on every shift. So, you know, every shift out there, I've got to pull together a working group. And that's a lot like the incidents that we deal with in technology, yeah. right? As- assembly, never, right? Yeah, assembly. Yeah, you never know exactly who's going to be available at any given time when the, when the alarm goes off, right? So this is why we, we you know, when, in, with my consulting clients, we focus so much on getting their assembly process really nailed down and smoothed out, right? To where to where everybody knows, you know, what to do and when to do and how to respond and how to work together and what's expected of them as far mm-hmm. as a response goes. Brent, you might be the coolest person I've ever talked to. So, <laughs> so, t- so tell me about how you, you even start with that. What was square one, right? Because I think that assembly, it's usually, um, at least in my experience, a lot of organizations are still kind of having that ad hoc freak out moment, you know, a, a server breaks, functionality goes down. And it's it's usually going from zero to one when it comes to getting the right people in the room quickly. Yeah. yeah. So how, how do you do that? The, well, the first thing you want to do is make it easy for anyone in your company to call for an incident response to, to say, hey, something's going wrong here. We need, we need an incident response. Mm-hmm. Even if they don't understand what it is that's going wrong, right? You want to create something that is as simple as calling 911, right? When somebody calls 911, the person who answers the phone doesn't ask them, well, which fire engines do you want us to send? And do you want the bomb squad and the hazmat team and so forth? They don't ask the caller that. The caller doesn't know. The caller just knows, hey, I see smoke. I see a car crash. You know, I see somebody having medical difficulty. And the person responding, the person they reach on the phone, the, the 911 operator, they're the ones who've got the training and the experience and the knowledge of what resources are available and, and, and all of that to be able to say, okay, yes, this is an emergency. And it almost always is. There are very few false alarms, relatively speaking. And it sounds like it's this level of emergency, you know, this severity level and so forth. And we can, we can change that if we learn more later. And uh, we're going to get you started with an incident commander and somebody from the database team or whatever, right? Yeah. They don't expect the, the person calling to know that. They don't expect the person reporting the problem to know that, right? right. So make it, as, make it as easy as possible for, for people to report things that they think are incidents and then, you know, put the burden of deciding whether it is an incident and how to respond to it on somebody who's got the training and experience to do that. Yeah. Yeah, because I think that one topic that we hear consistently is what what is what is the severity level of it? What's the paging process? Yeah. You know, like you said, fire departments aren't asking. Is this a five alarm fire? Is this yeah. a three alarm fire? Like that would be a the 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 level of cognitive load that you're putting on the person yeah. hitting the big red button only slows down the process, right? Exactly. It's assembly time. Exactly. So. So when a company is implementing this this process, what does this look like in practice? Sure. So I'm I'm a big fan of using Slack for incident response. I think it's a great tool. And uh, if you're already using Slack for other aspects of your business, then using it for incident response is is very natural. Sure. Uh, when I was at Slack, what we what we implemented was a slash command. Right. Mm. That's you can just type slash and then whatever the name of the command is, and it 
run some code. We implemented something called slash assemble, right? Because the Avengers oh. movie had just come out. It was like, you know, Avengers <laughs> assemble, right? So, you know, that was, we didn't very want dramatic. to use slash, we didn't want to use slash 911 because we wanted to reserve that for actual, like physical, real world, you know, emergencies in the office, oh, like I medical see, yeah. emergencies and fires and, you know, bomb threats and so forth. But we wanted something similar. So, so we used, we, we named our command slash assemble. And what, what slash assemble does is it pops up a tiny little form for the person reporting the problem that only has three fields on it. And two of those three oh, wow. fields are optional, right? And the first thing it says on the form is aim for getting this filled out and submitted in less than 60 seconds. It is more important to be fast than to be precise here. Right. Cause mm. we want to get the wheels turning. We want to get the balls rolling. Right. Yeah. It so, can have grammatical errors. It can have, you know, missing words, you, all lowercase doesn't matter. Yeah. You can provide more details about what you're seeing and why you think it's an incident. And here's this graph you can look at. You can provide those details later, you know, in a minute or yeah. two, once mm -hmm. units are in, in, in progress, once we've got responders paged and, and, and starting to get their stuff together to respond. So the only mandatory field on the form is the one that says, what are you reporting? What is the problem that you're seeing? Right. And it's, it's intentionally very vague. And again, we just want a thumbnail description, you know, maybe one, maybe three sentences of what are, what are they seeing? What, what makes them right. think this is an emergency? The Especially because everyone can open this, right? And sorry, to interrupt. Exactly. I mean, everyone, everyone can use this Sasha symbol. This is not just engineers. This is exactly. anyone in Slack. Yeah, exactly. Anyone in the company can launch, can launch an incident response, or it's, it's actually, it's not even an incident response at this point. They are reporting something that they think might be an incident. Okay, great. Ah, so yes. it takes, it takes all of the, the mental burden off of them, but it also takes the fear away of like, Ooh, I don't know, you know, the, launching an incident feels like a big deal. And maybe, and it's like, no, 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 just, just pull the, pull the alarm lever, you know, run slash assemble, tell us what the problem is. Nobody's going to laugh at you. If it turns out to be a false alarm, nobody is going to criticize you. Um, you know, we want to know and, and, and we want to get eyes on whatever this problem is. Right. Uh, and we, we really go to great lengths to encourage people to report things and to make sure they understand, Hey, we're not going to blame you. This is a blameless culture. This is, I think that's so important for incident response. Um, that, you know, we're all in this together. We're all doing the best we can. We all want to learn everything we can. If it turns out this was wrong or, or a false alarm or whatever, okay, no big deal. We got a little mm -hmm. bit more practice with our incident processes. We can usually yeah. use more practice, right? It's just not a big deal. When you're working with a client today, and it's not, not you know, a major organization that is building on top of the tool that they work with every day, Yeah. what's the process there? What is that first step? Someone says, yeah. you know what? I do want to run incidents inside of Slack. What do they do then? Yeah. Um, so there are commercial products out there, uh, like your own, you know, mm -hmm. there are also free products out there. Slack itself has even published. I've got, I've got a, a meeting coming up in a few days, I think with, with Slack to talk about a, an example incident bot that they have released recently. And this makes it much easier for people to develop and, and deploy these sorts of tools. Um, so I, so, so I think I've got a meeting with them, you know, in a few days to, to have them <laughs> shut it out a little bit. Yeah. Well, I think it's important, right? Because 
you know, obviously, like I said, we're biased a little bit here, but we try not to bring it up on the podcast because we're here to talk mm-hmm. about how to yeah. make things better. But and I, I like what is happening in the industry. We're seeing people uh, realize that the burden of declaring and assembling the right people quickly for an incident is an important justified problem to yeah. solve here. Yeah. And one of the other things that we keep hearing about is MTTR. I mean, I think if you if you say that enough times, John Allspaugh like appears in a puff of smoke or something like that. What what demon is, appears in a puff of greasy smoke and yeah. Yeah. You're the one that said demon, just to be clear here. <laughs> if John Allspaugh happens to listen to this. Um so I think that it's important to, to let's let's talk about that, right? Because assembly right. we we said is is an important thing to do, but that's a totally different thing than actually resolving an incident. So. It is, it is, but it's the first part, and it's the part that you as an organization actually have the most control over. It's tough to control how long it's going to take to figure out what's wrong and to fix it, right? And that's you know MTTR. Time to resolve supposedly measures the time from the start of the incident until the resolution of the incident. And immediately you get into all sorts of questions about, well, what do we count as the start time? Was it the time we got the report? Was it the time we responded to the report? Was it the time the incident commander got paged? Was it the time the incident commander decided to convert the assemble channel into an incident channel? Was it all the way back at the time the very first customer experienced the problem? or the first customer that reported experiencing the problem. You know, the, these, I mean, you can drive yourself crazy trying to figure out the start time. And then you've got the same thing on, okay, then what's the end time? If we're going to count a duration, that's from a start time to an end time. Yeah. So how do you figure out what the end time is? And these are these questions are very subjective and can be very political within an yeah. organization if it attaches, you know, too much meaning, too much capital, too much uh, political capital to reducing things like MTTR and so forth. So when people talk about reducing MTTR, I find that a really slippery slope, right? Because it's it's just, those are numbers that can be finagled to mean whatever somebody wants them to mean. And yeah. and um, that's just not that useful, right? I don't yeah, you could do very clever accounting when it yeah. comes to resolution. I mean, if I, yeah. if I go break my leg and I put a cast on, I mean, the problem is solved, but I'm yeah. still in a cast. <laughs> like it's yeah. still, yeah. And that's just one example of of just the silly ways that we can yeah. uh, gerrymander the the actual resolution yeah. times. Yeah. So, so where where does the clock start and where does the clock end on assembly time? Then, well, so assembly time. I, I think the useful view of assembly time is from first. Rep- Report to the responders. In other words, from the first time, from whenever somebody runs that slash assemble command until we've got people actively working on the problem. You know, uh, the way we used to say it at Google was eyes on the screen, hands on the keyboard, actively working on the problem. Mm. Right. So simply acknowledging the page from your cell phone while you're 30 miles away on a, on a motorcycle ride on the weekend. You're not there yet. You're not actually working on yeah. the problem yet at that point. It's going to take I, you a few <laughs> minutes to get somewhere where you've got cell signal and pull out the laptop and set up the VPN and, you know, and then finally you get all logged in. Now, okay, you're there. You're working, right? Uh, you're able to work on the problem, right? But like I said, assembly time is what you've got the most control over as an organization. You can choose 
what your on-call parameters are, how many people you have on call, how quickly you expect them to respond, uh, whether you pay them for being on call, whether they get paged or not. Uh, being on call is disruptive to your life, right? Especially if you're on a relatively short on-call period. You know, if you're on a if you're on a 30-minute on-call period where, where the expectation is that you'll be actively working within 30 minutes of, of being paged, mm-hmm. that's not too bad. You know, you have to take your yeah. laptop you with you. You can take you the walk. You can take the dog on a walk. And, yeah. yeah. You can go down to the laundry room and change the laundry. You know, you can go spend some time in the bathroom. You can go work out at the gym. You just have to be able to say, okay, if I get paged, I've got to be able to wrap up whatever I'm doing and get my laptop out and set up and so forth within 30 minutes. Okay. It's doable. And it's, it's somewhat disruptive to your family life because, you know, you miss a certain number of family dinners and things like that or get, get paged out in the middle of them. But it, but it's, it's doable. On the other hand, if you're on a team with like a five minute response expectation, you know, even, even figuring out whether you can take a, a, a not so quick trip to the bathroom may involve notifying your backup <laughs> that, Hey, um, I may have to let a page fall through to you because I just, you know, this is going to take a minute or three. Um, and it's, it, you can't just wander down to the laundry room. You can't, you can't even really commute, right? You can't be on a bus mm-hmm. or, or driving somewhere. You can't get off the road fast enough and pulled over and pull your laptop out and set up the, you know, it, it's just, it's a much different experience. It's almost, almost like being chained to your desk, right? Which yeah. is why some companies, Google, for example, if you are on call with a five minute response expectation, you're getting paid basically two thirds of your base salary mm. in bonus for those hours that you're on call yeah. at that five yeah. minute expectation, right? Because this they is getting more and more popular that, too, right? Sorry. More in the industry, it's more and more popular in the industry seeing people getting actually paid to, yeah. to be on call. And it makes a lot of sense. Right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, it, like I said, it is a dis, the, Merely being on call, whether you get called or not, is a disruption to your life, right? Mm-hmm. And, and you know, it's kind of funny when, when we have these conversations about this. Americans look at us and it's like, they'll pay me for being on call? Almost nobody does that. And Europeans look at us and say, you don't pay people for being on call? You don't have yep. to? You know, so, so it, it, it varies a lot around the world and from company and company and, and so forth. But the trend is definitely moving, you know, towards compensating people for being on call Mm -hmm. as well as for when they actually get called. Yeah. Yeah. And that, and that is, it makes sense because if you, you want folks that are responsible for getting to an incident and getting to, you know, eyes on screen, what was it? Eyes on screen, hands on keyboard to the moment, getting someone from, from, you know, being on a couch like the one behind me to hands on screen, eyes on screen, hands on keyboard. I'll get it right eventually. Yeah. That is, that's important because that, yep. that's your assembly time. That yep. is, that is exactly because I would say that for all the incidents that I've resolved in my career, I would say that 90% of them were actually fairly simple. Yeah. They were pretty easy to fix. Yeah. And, all, but because the time that we have control over is that assembly time, and most incidents, at least in my experience, are fairly easy to fix. Mm-hmm. Let's let's talk about that. Let's let's talk about great. So, we're we're getting so, there fast. How do we how do we solve incidents? Yeah. 
So one of the things no. <laughs> when, when I teach incident responders, you know, I, I, I teach uh, my clients, uh, I teach half day classes for all engineers on how to be a good incident responder. Because basically, I believe anybody in an engineering organization might be able to help, might be called in to help, and they need to know how to work together in an emergency, which is different mm -hmm. from how we work together day to day, right? But there, there are certain ways of working together in an emergency that can get you through that emergency faster and, and, and thereby reduce the impact of the incident on the company and on the clients and everything else. But anyway, one of the things that I talk about is you know, being on call and what we expect from someone who is on call. And what I usually say is, look, 90% of the time when you get paged, it's not really a problem. Either it's a false alarm or it's something you can easily fix yourself or it's something you just need to file a ticket about and, 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 and you know, fix it during your next normal work day or whatever. That's 90% of the time, you know, when most engineers get paged say 9% of the time. Yeah, it's a problem. And you know, you know what it is, and you need to involve somebody else from your team or a nearby team, and you know who that is. And you just mm -hmm. call them and you get it done. Right? Again, no big deal, not formally an incident. Right? Yep. But you know, it's like, yeah, I need to know what to do. And I need to know who else to get involved in it, And we just get it fixed. Okay. So there's, that's 90 plus nine, you're at 99% now. 1% of the time, you get paged for something, you look at it, and you say, oh, this is a big problem. This is the tip of the iceberg. This is an incident. I need to start the incident response process. I need to page other people and get that ball rolling and get that process spun up and so forth, right? When I look at an engineer, when I'm an engineering manager, and I look at an engineer who's going on call, what I care more about than anything else is their judgment to realize which of those three situations they're in and act appropriately and decisively. I would much rather have an engineer who is more willing to call for help than an engineer who is more likely to try and cowboy it by themselves because they don't want to bother <laughs> anybody else. You know, like I said, start the incident, trigger the incident process. If nothing else, it's good practice for everybody involved. It, 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 you know, works out the kinks and, and stretches those muscles and gets us that much better prepared and practice and smooth for the next one, which may be a big one, which may the be big one. a real one, you know, and, yeah. and so forth. So uh, false alarms just aren't really a problem with incidents that not yeah. in the kind of tech incidents that we normally deal with. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I, I think that uh, I got to say, I had a very different experience. One out of a hundred times getting paged. That's a real assemble. That sounds like the dream, actually, for me, at least based on my past. Um, well, it depends on what kind I of think... a rotation you're on, right? If you are, it, I mean, if you are specifically an on-call incident commander, no, 90% mm -hmm. of the times you get called, it's going to be, there's an incident, right? But, I, yeah. but what I meant by what I, my example was, if you're an on-call engineer for some service, you know, Mm -hmm. for the database or for the back end or for the the image rendering system or you know however your service is architected and built the majority of times you get paged at most companies 
it's not an incident. It's, it's, it's a problem or it's a false alarm. A lot of companies still have way too many false alarms and they need to work on their, their yeah. alarm discipline. And that's another thing I kind of preach to people and try and help them understand, you know, why it's important to have healthy alarm, you know, discipline and hygiene and so forth, right? So that people don't become numb. Uh, to the alarms and, and right. don't miss a real incident because, oh, it's just one more false alarm. It's like, no, it's not, not this time. Right. Yeah. But, but yeah, so it, it totally depends on what kind of on-call rotation you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. And I've definitely been the victim of, of, uh, on-call alarm fatigue and it, it definitely impacts how fast you react yeah. to incidents. Yeah. Um, and, you know, further impacting that, one metric you control, which is assembly time. Yeah. So one thing that we were also talking about is it, when when someone when a, a team of people have assembled, they're they're working on this incident. I'm curious, what is what is a way that these teams? How do you consult people on resolving these incidents? Maybe just a little bit faster. And I know yeah. that's a touchy sh- subject, right? It is so variable, but there's got to be something. Right. Yeah, yeah. So one of my favorite one of my favorite things about working on incidents in technology fields is we have superpowers. We have powers that you know a doctor or or a firefighter or a paramedic would would like give their left arm for, right? And one of those <laughs> powers that we have that they don't that we take for granted, but that they don't have in their world is reversibility, right? There are mm-hmm. very, there, there are, there are very few actions that we can take. There are very few actions that we need to take during an incident, during a technology incident that cannot be done in a reversible way. Right. So, for example, what do I mean by that? Well, let's imagine you've, you've got a configuration file that you need to modify. Yep. Rather than modifying the file in place, you can make a copy of what you think is the broken one, make the changes to it, see if those changes work. Mm -hmm. And if they don't go back to the original version. Yeah. And you're no worse off than you were before. Typically there, there are some exceptions. A doctor choosing to administer drugs or amputate an arm or something like that. Can't cannot say, Oh, well, gee, that didn't help. Let me put the arm back on. No. Yeah. You know, their decisions are, are, (laughs) often irreversible, right? So we can take advantage of that reversibility of what we do to try things. We we can afford to run experiments during our incident responses to say, okay, we think this is going to, we think we understand what's going on. We think that this is going to make it better. Let's try it for 1% of the users or 1% of the machines or something like that. We can do that. You know, not everybody has built their system so that they can do that, but you can build systems that way. And it's worth doing that, you know, being able to canary your changes, right? Being able to do staged releases where, you know, you release to first 1% and then 10% and then 100% if it looks good at each of those prior stages. So, you know, but, but you have to get into the habit and you have to teach engineers to have the habit of doing things in reversible ways. And it's stuff like don't delete, you know, don't edit the files in place, make a copy of them, edit the copy, 
so that you can always put the original if, back. If it's not in source control, right? Yeah, too, using right? yeah, exactly. It's just like teaching people to use use Git or whatever source control. Um, another one is don't make changes, don't make data changes in your database in a non-reversible way. Don't like actually edit the data, right? Write a script that's going to modify the data, and the first thing it does is make a copy of the old data. Or if you're going to delete yeah. data, don't actually delete it. Just move the file out of the way or tag the tag the um, data in the database for deleted, but don't actually wipe it out until later, right? Those sorts yeah. of things, right? And and, and it, it's like you have to learn to think about those things and to approach the problems that way, the same way you have to learn to think about writing code in a testable way, the same way you have to learn about thinking, you know, you have to learn about uh, architecting your services so that you can do canaries, right? These are all different um, programming practices and and service architecture approaches that you can choose to take, mm -hmm. and there's there's benefits from doing that. You know, like being able to you know use that reversibility to your advantage during an incident. The other thing about reversibility, though, is it makes it much easier to do things like say, oh, hey, we just pushed a new, new release and things don't seem to be working well. Let's just roll it back. Yeah. Okay, if you have built in and designed in reversibility and and designed in the notion of of yeah, there are going to be multiple versions of the service running simultaneously, and so we have to architect and and design changes in our database in such a way to accommodate that, right? With like you know a multi stage process, we can't just rename a column; we have to create a new column and then at some later date delete the old column. You know, there's there's all these sorts of practices about how to do this, right? But if you do those practices, and if you learn to think that way and design and build and operate your systems that way, it pays off in being able to do things like, hey, this doesn't seem to be working so well. Let's just roll back to the past version. And it's no big deal. It's not a, yeah. ooh, ooh, no, we can't do that because we already deleted what that previous version depended upon. And that's just going to, no, you know, you, you have to always be prepared to roll back. Yeah, I I. I used to be a, a purist in in my thinking when I built software and released code. It was I, I had this purist mindset of roll always roll forward, right? Like always try to patch the problem and solve it that way. And I've I've kind of come back from that because when it comes to incidents and incident response, your customers don't really care how the problem is addressed, right? It's if you're if you want to do a roll forward strategy, I, that's that's fine. But consider the consequences of that as well. Are you going to spend more time fixing the problem and therefore putting undue pain on your customers just so you can fix the code? Yeah. Or should you just go back to a version of the code that works? Yeah, um, yeah roll forward and I, I roll forward assumes that you know what the problem is, that you are correct in your assessment and you are correct yeah. in the fix that's going to be applied. And, you know, that, that, that you it assumes that you're right. And yeah. you know, sometimes you're not right. You know? So, yeah. you know, sometimes, you know, a lot of times roll forward works, but other times, boy, you're just digging your hole deeper. Yeah. And, and you, we can even double down on the doctor example in that case, right? Whenever they perform a surgery, it'll just go in there and perform a surgery. They've done so many tests. Yeah. They have checked so many things. And then they eventually decide that the way to resolve this personal body incident that you are having right now 
is to roll forward. Yeah. And I think that's an important detail for, for folks that are responding to incidents to, to re- remind yourself that it's okay to restart something yeah. if you think that's going to solve the problem. I have re- That's my default most of the time, actually, yeah. is that if I think something's acting up, I'm just going to restart it. It's If I think it's going to fix the problem... Yep. But again, there's an implicit assumption there that you've got good logs that you're going to go back to be able to go back to after the fact and right. analyze. Yeah. If you don't have the diagnostics, yeah, yeah. then it's yeah. tough. Yeah. And, and, and even in the medical case, you know, even in the surgery example, when, when they've made a decision, yes, we're going to open this person up and remove their appendix, mm-hmm. they expect to see certain things at certain stages of the operation, right? When they open the abdomen, they expect to see a swollen appendix and nothing else. Mm-hmm. And if they open the patient up and discover something other than what they expected, they'll hit pause and rethink. Yeah. Right. And, 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 you know, so, so even roll forward, you have to do cautiously. Right. Yeah. I love that example and, and where we're going with that because I actually just finished, there was a, a show on Netflix called Emergency NYC. Mm-hmm. And it actually follows very, very closely the emergency services of New York City. They respond to 4,000 calls a day. Yeah. It's it's a massive, massive operation that they run here. And at the beginning of every surgery that they they perform and show, there's actually someone with a, a card that that is saying out loud, reading a card out loud, saying, in, in this scenario, we're doing this. Yes. Have we checked? Raise your left hand so people know where they're like. It's just this very yeah. interesting process they go forward um, because it isn't reversible yeah. what they're about to yeah. do. There, there's actually a fascinating book on this that's that's highly applicable to incident management. It's called. Is, can I check- guess what it is? The checklist. Nah, it's a checklist by a tool. A tool Gawande. Yeah. Uh, Doctor Gawanda is a Harvard surgeon and professor of surgery and has studied and written extensively about the use of checklists, simple little mm-hmm. 10-line checklists in high-stress, high-consequence situations like surgery, like aviation, like you know military, like all sorts of different scenarios, right? And, and one of the misconceptions that he addresses is people, people assume that checklists are for novices. No, 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 no. Checklists are for the experts, right? Because the experts often get derailed, right? One of my favorite sayings is people are bad robots, right? We get interrupted. (laughs) We get distracted. We skip steps. We repeat steps. We add steps that aren't relevant to the problem we're doing at the moment. We're, We're trying to do too many things at once, right? Whatever. And even though we're experts, we miss something or we typo something or whatever. Checklists help you avoid those sorts of problems. They are a tool for experts as well as novices to help you do things successfully. And if it's a high consequence, you know, thing like surgery or flying or, you know, rolling forward or rolling back a release or running an incident or something like that, uh, that's very powerful. So yeah, uh, you know, even people like combat medics, they have checklists mm-hmm. strapped to their forearm, right? They have, it's like a, like oh, a wow. football quarterback, you know, flip book of, of, oh, yeah. of the, you know, battlefield injury types and things for them to check and what they expect the numbers to be and so forth. So yeah, uh, uh, highly recommend that book. It's a quick read. It's, it's a short book. It's only, only takes a couple hours yep. to read it and it's a real eye opener. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, it was something like he uh, he introduced these checklists and mistakes went down 70% yeah. or something like that in a, a couple months span. Yeah. It's, it's yeah, pretty a, phenomenal yeah. way to, and I mean, talk about better incidents, right? Yeah. And I, I think that applies to everything we've talked about today, kind of kind of rounding it all up. It's you can, if we're talking about assembly time and getting that down, like make the checklist, make a checklist for what that assembly really does need to look like. Yep. Um, and be consistent with it. And then also reversibility. You can have a checklist for how do we build reversible software? Does it have a migration that we're about to deploy that's going to make the data not reversible? Well, maybe we should, you know, yeah, make it reversible. Yeah. Um, and I, I think it's a, that's a great way to kind of think about everything we talked about today and a total, total unplanned topic that we land on there, but I, I love it. So what are, what are some, some kind of, parting thoughts that you maybe you maybe have for folks. And a question I always ask at the end here is, what's the next step? Someone that just listened to this, they, they say, yes, okay, I'm going I'm to care about assembly time. Yeah. I'm going to think about reversibility. Yeah. Those are, those are the end, that's the end state. Yeah. So what, what's the, put the left foot first here. Yeah. So the, the next step as far as, you know, better incidents, I mean, we're starting to assemble some, uh, some really good uh, guides and, and, and things like that on the Better Incidents website, but it's new, right? But the one thing that's been out there for quite a few years and that I just love because it was released as open source and I think it's made such a huge impact in our, in our field is the response.pagerduty.com, right? Mm -hmm. PagerDuty years ago, like five or six years ago at this point, released under an open source license a sanitized version of all of their internal incident response playbooks and training materials and everything and said, here, here you, you all can use this. It's under an Apache 2.0 license, which means you can copy it and modify it for your own use. And we'd love to take patches back from you. And, you know, here's how we do it. You can use this if you want as your starting point for how your company is going to do it. So the other thing that's really starting to happen now is, is uh, the whole learning from incidents trend, right? We're, totally. we're starting to see a broadening of the view. It's like, yeah, the incident, the incident isn't over when it's over, right? Because, mm -hmm. you know, we've still got to figure out, okay, what happened? How do we prevent problems like that from happening again? If we cannot prevent it, or even if we can, how do we prepare better, right? What could we have done differently in the response that could have made things gone better? And you have to be careful how you ask that question because you can run into something <laughs> called a counterfactual, which is not useful, right? But it is fair to say, hey, are there tools we wish we had that would have made this easier? Maybe we can develop those tools. Are there training that we wish we had had or more of our people had or something? Maybe we can go get that training, you know, things like that, right? And then you also want to start looking at incidents. There's a tendency to look at individual incidents rather than sets of incidents, right? So it's it's yeah. useful every once in a while to step back and look at the, the set of incidents your company has had. And then it's useful mm -hmm. to also expand and look at not just incidents, but near misses, things that weren't incidents, yeah. but are easy to see that, oh, if we hadn't caught this, that could have been worse. How could we have, you know, what other guardrails could we have put in place? What other tools? so on and so forth. So it's this whole broadening view. And, you know, threaded throughout this whole thing is the notion of blamelessness, right? And wanting to work from an assumption that everybody involved is doing the best they can with the knowledge and the tools that they have, that whatever they did, they did for what they thought was a good reason. 
and you know, let's work to understand those reasons and and uh, how they might have been misled or how they might have uh, misconceived something. How can we restructure it so that it's less you know mistake prone? All all those sorts of things. Well, one, one one of my one of my favorite stories, you know, along those lines, goes back to uh, the early days of World War II. The U.S. was producing bombers, aircraft, and they were the most complicated mm-hmm. aircraft ever built. I forget whether it was the B-29 or the B-17 or one of the others. But basically, they were having a whole rash of problems where on landing, pilots were bringing these big, giant, complicated airplanes in for a landing. And at what looked like the very last second of what was going to be a perfectly normal landing, they'd retract the landing gear and land the airplane on its belly, right? Causing all sorts of damage and, and, and so forth. But this is happening over and over and over again. And, and they couldn't figure out what was going on. And what they, what they eventually figured out was that there was a, a, a flap adjustment, right? The flaps are the things that come down on the trailing edge of the wing mm-hmm. and give you more lift at low speed situations like landing. Yep. There's there, the flap lever was right next to the landing gear lever. And the pilots were, because they'd reach down oh. without looking, because they're looking ahead like you're supposed to, to judge, you know, your angle and your, you don't want to be left or right on the runway and anything, you know, they reached down and they would inadvertently grab the wrong lever. Mm-hmm. So the solution to this, I thought was really clever. They changed the handles. They changed the knob on the end of the handle, right? So it's that, like um, the knob on the landing gear now is like a little tire, right? It's a little, it's a little rubber donut, <laughs> right? And the knob on the end of the flap is like a little, you know, knife shaped thing, like the flap looks like, right? And, th- and so forth, right? So that they could tell when they grabbed it, wait, that doesn't feel right. I've grabbed the wrong, you know, so. Um, it's, it's so, it's so fascinating when we think about how do we start responding to incidents yeah. better? And I think that's such a great story. It's, you know, it's, it's a small thing that you're going to need to do yeah. first. I, uh, I think that we always, even the, as engineers, I feel like are always, are always more prone to being guilty of this is that we, we always come up with these lavish solutions to a problem. But when it comes to just responding to an incident better, it's, it can be as simple as just changing a knob in the, yeah. <laughs> in the cockpit to, so you, you, when you feel it, like, you know, oh, I'm, a, I'm in a production terminal, not a staging terminal. Yeah. So I shouldn't run Let this. Let me change the background color or the prompt color or something like yeah. that to make it really obvious that, hey, if I'm ty- yeah. typing on the red background, that's production. Yep. Speaking, speaking as someone that has responded to an incident that was due to, you know, just uh, all terminals look the same. Yeah. So how do we, but, and you know, it's, it's that it's, it's checklist. It, it really is. How do you start having a better incident? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's probably a small thing first to, to get going. It's a lot of small things. And that's, that's, that's what a lot of this adds up to is, is it's not any one big thing. It's a whole bunch of little things. It's a whole bunch of practices and, and ways of looking at the problem and, and philosophies and, and so forth that just, it all adds up, right? Um, you know, talk, we were talking about reversibility earlier and how important that is. I used to do a lot of network engineering work, network architecture work, a lot of working with routers, you know, configuring routers and things like that, sometimes thousands of miles away, right? And mm-hmm. I got to tell you, I, I can't remember how many times I've had that plummeting stomach feeling of you type in a command, you hit return, and the prompt doesn't come back. 
Yep. It's like, oh, wh- oh, what did I just do? I just watched yeah. it. <laughs> and you, you sit there and wait, <laughs> and you wait. It's like, oh, I'm going to have to call somebody to go drive to the data center and push the power button. And so, right, and you do that a few times, and you start to learn things like, hey, these routers have tools to automatically revert configs. Reversibility we talked about, right? To automatically yep. revert configs if you don't confirm the result of a command that you just issued. So you have to set up this this revert timer, right? But once you've Mm -hmm. done it, then you can issue the command. And if it cuts you off, then 30 seconds later, it's automatically going to revert. And if it doesn't cut you off, it does what you expect. You cancel the timer on the revert, right? It's learning to work in those ways, right? Learning what those ways are and and, and so forth that pays off. And the moment, you know, the moment that sinking feeling hits and it doesn't come back and it's 2 a.m., you can always type in slash assemble mm-hmm. and get the yep. people together. Yep, yep. Well, I think with that, it. I mean, what a what a fun conversation here. I mean, I think you you think you covered so many things that are on the on my mind on so many other folks that I chat with, and um, this was such a con- fun conversation, Brent. Thanks so much for for coming and and chatting with us and and um, sharing the many years of wisdom. Outside of software and in software, all all alike. Happy to do it. Look forward to seeing you online. And uh, now that we're back in the real world and doing conferences again, you know, folks come to LFICon, come to SRECon. You know, we love having conversations and telling stories like this. I will. I will happily find you and stand awkwardly next to you until we start talking again. (laughs) Any any day. All right. Well, thanks so much, and uh, see you around. Yep. See ya. The Better Incidents podcast is lovingly nurtured by the team at Fire Hydrant and made possible with generous contributions from the Better Incidents Collective. Learn more at betterincidents.com.